there is one main idea that I want you to reflect on this morning, and it's really a call of action that you can take as soon as you walk out these doors today. And that is, I want to encourage you to view yourself as a potential answer to prayer. I want you to understand yourself in terms of the embodiment of God's divine action in this world. That's what we're going to see in the text this morning, and the idea will become more clear as we go. But that movement to be God's acting hand in this world is not an act of presumption, but it is instead an act of faith. And this is why. Because we believe that God is constantly moving people from emptiness to fullness by his spirit through the work of his son for his glory. And what we see in the book of Ruth is this main character, Naomi, going from empty to full through the divine action of God in people, in the, in the person of Boaz, in the person of Ruth. And I think our response to this story primarily ought to be to reflect on what prayers God might want you to answer and what promises of God you can bring about in the life of someone else. Let me illustrate this from, it's kind of a goofy movie. It's at least low budget. I think we could describe it that way. It's this film called Sheffy. I watched this, I think, when I was seven or eight. And there's one scene in that movie that's stuck in my mind still. And I was thinking about it this morning. And there's this, I think the guy's a circuit riding preacher or something like that. So you have to think riding on the horse in the winter, visiting churches, this sort of thing. And he comes across this poor guy walking in the snow who's freezing to death because he doesn't have any socks or any shoes. Or I, I don't remember the exact details. Google the movie Sheffy and watch it and you'll, you'll figure out what the exact details are. But this guy, this preacher on the horse stops and prays for this guy who's freezing to death. And he gets, you know, for him to be provided for, for him to be warm, these sorts of things. And the guy gets back on his horse and starts to ride away, but then stops and says, I'm the answer to the prayer. And he gets off the horse and he takes off his socks and he gives them to this guy who's walking in the snow freezing. And I think that's the exact kind of idea that we're being given in the book of Ruth. We are to embody and to act as God's divine agent to answer our prayers for other people. So that's the idea I want you to take away. And I want you to root it in God's deeper redemptive work of bringing people from empty to full and count it a privilege that he might use us to do that. So we're in Ruth chapter three, and we, we notice two important shifts in Naomi last week. The first important shift is with respect to Naomi's relationship to the Lord himself. At the end of chapter one, when she encountered the women of Bethlehem, they, they were surprised that she was back. They were excited about this. And she told them to call her Mara bitter because the Lord has, had turned his hand against her and he had brought her back empty. Even though Ruth, who had made a covenantal pledge to her, was standing right next to her. This, this younger Moabite woman had given up all of her hopes and dreams, her hopes of a future of rest in the home of a husband to sacrifice herself for the good of Naomi. And all Naomi could see when she looked at God and when she looked at Naomi was bitterness, nothing good. Well, by the time we get to the, to the end of chapter two, Naomi says things like, the Lord has not abandoned his faithfulness and steadfast love to the living or to the dead. 
So Naomi has had a drastic change in perspective on the working of the Lord in her life. But then she also now turns to Ruth and refers to her as my daughter. So before where there was silence and, and where there was even betrayal, now Naomi is looking at Ruth and saying, this woman is a gift from the Lord to me. She is my daughter. And now at the start of chapter three, Naomi is going to take the initiative for the first time in the book and try to provide rest for Ruth. So Ruth 3, I'm going to read a few verses and then make a few comments here. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, when Orpah and Ruth are coming with Naomi back to Israel, Naomi stops them and says, go back to the homes of your mothers and may the Lord bless you and may he provide rest for you in the home of your husband. Well, now Naomi is picking this up again and realizing it is up to me to answer my own prayer for for my daughter-in-law. So she's now saying, isn't it right for me to find rest for you in the home of a husband? So then she turns her attention to this guy, Boaz. Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? And as I explained last week, she has just identified this guy as someone who's already showed kindness to them. So perhaps he'll show another kindness in marrying Ruth. Boaz had zero responsibility to marry Ruth. There was no reason that he needed to. Uh, He is a relative, but he's not a brother. So we talked about this idea of leveret marriage. Boaz was not a brother. He had no responsibility to marry Ruth. And in fact, the law would forbid Boaz to marry Ruth because she's a Moabite and he's an Israelite. Nevertheless, Naomi's about to scheme here in a way that will bring Boaz and Ruth together in marriage. She says, this evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. I don't know about you, but this is a bizarre situation that Naomi has contrived. She is putting Boaz and Ruth both in a really odd situation and probably would be described by anyone who would see this as a compromising situation. That I, I don't know how to take Naomi's instructions here this, for a few reasons. Number one, because this threshing floor is apparently a place where prostitutes would visit men who were working on the threshing floor. So in Hosea 9.1, Israel is condemned because they love the wages of a prostitute on the flesh, threshing floor. So I I think that, especially during the times of the judges, it would not be uncommon for women to dress themselves up, to put on this perfumed oil to make themselves enticing, and to earn a prostitute's wage on the threshing floor with these Israelite men who were working. So that alone colors this entire scene with a level of moral ambiguity that ought to make us nervous that Naomi is setting up Boaz and Ruth to sin with some sort of sexual immorality. This should hit us as bizarre and uncomfortable. Further, it should make us uncomfortable 
because Bo, Ruth is not to allow anyone to see her, not even this guy. And then she's supposed to lay down next to him and uncover his feet or legs. Now, this is, that language is related to an idiom for uncovering someone in, in a sexual way. And so the, the author is providing a level of sexual tension here that should be palpable. We, we should feel this and we should feel uncomfortable with it. So what should we think of Naomi? I, I think that's the question that we have to ask is, what do, what do we think of Naomi here? I think, and this isn't going to help too much, but I think we need to think about her like we think about Rebecca. And if you remember that there's this patriarch Isaac who has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and the Lord has said that Jacob is the one who's going to carry the family line forward, not Esau. That means Jacob's got to receive the blessing, but you have this guy Isaac who's blind and he thinks he's about to die. We'll find out later he lives on for like at least two more decades. But he says, I'm about to die. And so he's going to bless Esau. So he tells Esau to go out into the field and his wife, Rebecca, is listening. And as soon as she hears this, she knows the promise of the Lord. She knows Isaac knows the promise of the Lord. And she contrives a plan for her other son, Jacob, to dress himself up in a way that will change his smell, his feel, and to present himself to his father to ask for a favor. Well, this is very much in parallel with what's going on here. Naomi has told Ruth to dress herself up, to put on this perfumed oil, and in the dead of night, you know, essentially in blindness, to ask a favor of this guy. Well, both of those actions are filled with a level of moral ambiguity that makes us uncomfortable. Now, I don't know what to say about this other than the fact that multiple times in the scriptures, there are individuals who face a situation where the law of the Lord does not have a neat application or the law of the Lord has not been prescribed for that exact situation. And then these individuals go on to take initiative to act, to secure God's promises in a way that mystifies us, that, that defies a normal pattern of being that... that and the text makes no judgment on it. The only judgment the text make on it is the promise of the Lord coming about. And I think what this should do is throw a wrench in a black and white way of viewing the world. I, I don't know how to say it better than that, other than to say there are certain times where God's people have acted to secure his promises and to answer prayers on behalf of his people that defy a normal way of being in the world. But I think they're actions of faith. I think they're grounded in faith. And I think whatever is going on in the mind of the person who devises these schemes is doing it on God's behalf as divine action in the world. Now, Naomi, I think, is a little bit easier to reconcile than Rebecca. And, and we're not studying Genesis, so that helps us this morning. We, we don't have to try to justify Rebecca. But I think Naomi is looking at Boaz, and she's looking at Ruth, and she knows these are two people of noble character. And I'm going to put them in a situation where it forces action to happen, but it's going to be noble, virtuous action. The narrator has clued us into this at the beginning of chapter 2 when they said that Boaz was a prominent, noble man. Now, that exact language of a noble man is applied to Ruth later on, as we'll see. She's a noble woman. 
So I think Naomi is devising this plan that defies all cultural expectation and, and creates a pr- surprising situation in which both Boaz and Ruth will act to undo the evils of their forebearers and will stand as examples of noble individuals who work to bring about God's promises and further his redemptive plan in the world. I think that's all I can say about it, and I hope that it leaves us with some sense of mystery. I think that's what the biblical text does over and over again, whether it's Rahab's lies to to the men who inquire about the Israelites or Rebecca or so many others. I think there's a level of mystery there. And if nothing else, we can say that God works through human action, sometimes because of the virtues of that action and sometimes in spite of it. And because the text does not issue a judgment on Naomi's action here or Rebecca's, I hesitate to do so as well, but I think we should stand in awe that God uses all sorts of actions to further his redemptive plan in the world. So that's where I want to leave this, but if you've never questioned Naomi's plan, you should. It's, it's bizarre, and I don't know of another way to talk about it. So she gives her these instructions, and, and Ruth is going to follow them. She's going to obey, and in fact, Ruth says in verse 5, I will do everything you say. Okay, she's going to do according to all that she says. And, and I think Ruth is acting here in faith once again. We've seen her act in faith all along. She's about to act in faith once again. But because we have this situation in mind, I, I want to help you read every text of the Bible in light of the larger message of the Bible in other texts in the Bible. And I think what this narrator is doing is the storyteller is crafting a story that brings to mind other stories in the Bible, and we ought to view this action in light of those actions, sometimes as fixing the errors of earlier people's actions, and other times this, it's going to highlight how this story stands as a model for virtuous action whenever we might come into a similar situation. So the the first similar situation that comes to mind is the situation of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. And if you remember this situation, there's this guy Judah, the, the son of Jacob, and his son married a woman named Tamar, a non Israelite. But Judah's son dies because he's wicked in the sight of the Lord. But then his brother is supposed to fill this role of leveret marriage, but he acts wickedly as well. And essentially every brother dies because of their wickedness, except for the youngest brother. So Judah tells Tamar, you know, there's this youngest brother, stay in our house. When he grows up, he can be your husband as well. But that's a lie. Judah's not acting on that. Maybe he thinks that Tamar is cursed, and so every son that is with her dies or something like that, but he's not acting virtuously, and and he lies to her. So what this lady does is she dresses up as a cult prostitute, knowing that Judah is going to walk down a road, and knowing the character of Judah, that he would turn aside for a cult prostitute. And, And they sleep together, and she has a child named Perez with him. Now, this son is going to appear later on in the book of Ruth, actually, but the parallels are striking. You have a family situation where the family line is in jeopardy, and there's no one who can fill the role of leveret marriage. And so there's this older man who who lays with a younger woman and has a child through him, through through that younger woman. And, And that younger woman dresses up in a way that disguises herself. 
Well, that's what's going to happen in this story. Ruth is going to dress up in a way. She's going to look different. And it's going to be in the dead of night when, when Boaz can't recognize her. But what's going to be different, and we have to give this story away, spoiler alert if you haven't read the book of Ruth, but Boaz acts virtuously. So where Judah fails to act virtuously, Boaz acts virtuously. Boaz is one of the great-grandsons of Perez, the son of Judah. And so the family line is being carried on, but it's now being carried on with nobility and dignity and virtue. Hold on to that idea of family line and genetics not determining your action in this world because that's going to be a significant reflection that we ought to have. That our DNA and our environment don't shape our destiny. Your, your destiny is not determined by your genes. And that's proved when Boaz acts with nobility where Judah act, acted with vice. Okay, so that's one parallel story or at least a story that I think the the author of Ruth intends for us to reflect upon as we read this story. The second one is the text that Tim read this morning from Genesis 19, where you have Lot and his two daughters. Once again, you have a family line in jeopardy with no one who exists to fill the role of a leveret husband. So you have Lot and his two daughters, and his two daughters say, we we need to carry on our father's line and so they get him so drunk that he doesn't know when they come in or when they leave. And, and they father children through him. And one is a son named Moab, who becomes the father of the Moabites, from whose line Ruth eventually comes. So now you have Ruth the Moabitess, and, and the Moabites are just known in Israel's history as sexually promiscuous individuals. That's seen in the book of Judges. This story occurs during the time of the judges. And so you might expect a Moabitess put in a sexually compromising situation to sin sexually. Well, that's a difference here. Ruth is not going to do that because she's a woman of virtue. But then also there is going to be a major difference between Boaz and Lot. Lot drinks so much and becomes so drunk that he doesn't know on two occasions not just one, but on two occasions, he doesn't know when a woman comes in and sleeps with him and leaves. That's a kind of drunkenness that is outside of God's gift of of wine. Lot misuses that and his daughters misuse that. Well, Naomi is going to tell Ruth, don't let him see you until after he's eaten and drunk. And, and usually meals at the threshing floor, we, we see are probably more festive meals. They involve eating good food and drinking wine. And it's going to describe Boaz as going to bed with a merry heart. And that's often used of what one commentator refers to as holy intoxication, this drinking of wine that is not to the kind of drunkenness that we might see in Lot, but to the merriness of heart that the biblical authors often talk about. And so you have a guy, Boaz, who's going to be strikingly different than this guy, Lot. Lot gets very drunk. Boaz is merry of heart, and and they act in opposite ways. Once again, there's this theme that your family line does not determine your destiny and your relationship to the Lord. Ruth is the daughter of Lot's daughter, several generations in between but she is not destined to act as Lot's daughter acted. Instead, she is going to act as a true Israelite. 
Okay, so I, I think we need to have those two stories in mind as we look backwards. And whoever received the book of Ruth would have known those stories really, really well. Now, we don't know when the book of Ruth was written. A lot of people take a guess and say it was written during the exile. So when we talk about an exilic writing, that's way after David is dead and the nation has split in, in their in captivity, essentially. And if the book of Ruth is written during the exile, then all of the events of David's life would be known. So I think it's worth reading this book and reflecting on David's life, who is, as we know, another spoiler alert, is the great-great-grandson of Ruth. Okay, there's another person in the family line. Now, there's a similar situation that David faced that's recorded in 2 Samuel 11. There's a woman who's washing herself, perhaps similar to the way that Ruth might have washed herself. But then, and, and she's married to this guy, Uriah the Hittite. That means he's not an Israelite. So you have another non-Israelite individual. Bathsheba is probably an Israelite. But this guy, King David, looks on her and he, he summons her. And as the king, she has no other option but to come and do his bidding. But, but David calls her to himself and then he sleeps with her and fathers a child with her and, and then murders her husband. And what's interesting to me is that if David knew his family history, and we would assume that he did, he knew of his great-great-grandfather who acted in the exact opposite way. I, I think David failed to learn from his great-grandfather. And, and we should never offer David an excuse as if he didn't know better or something like that. Because not only did he have God's word, he had his family history to show him how he could live with nobility and virtue. And once again, it's a reminder that our DNA has virtually no bearing on our actions in this world. Now, I'm underplaying the way that our genetics work a little bit, maybe. But the point is that in three occasions, you see the offspring of individuals who act in contradictory ways to their, to their genetic relatives. Twice in, you know, those things were reversed in a positive way, while now further down the line, it's reversed in a negative way. So my point here that I'm trying to make is that whatever you think of your DNA and whatever excuses you might be giving for your wrong actions or whatever virtue you might project on someone else as a result of their family line, that's misguided. You shouldn't think that I'm destined to always be an angry person because my dad was an angry person. You shouldn't think I'm destined to be a drunk because my uncle was a drunk. You shouldn't think I'm destined to act with sexual immorality because my aunt acted in sexual immorality. That, that is the wrong way of thinking. And the way that this is reversed, where negative things are reversed, is when God becomes the center of a person's life and when they orient their action in a world to secure his promises and to act as answers to the prayers of his people. When, when we make God the center of our life and orient our life in that way, it directs our action such that God is working in us so that we can say God's action in this world is through us and that divine action moves us towards a virtuous end. In, in, in philosophical terms, we talk about this in terms of pursuing the good and the true and the beautiful. And if we set ourselves up with God as the supreme being, the supreme good and true and beautiful, then our DNA doesn't need to cause us to pursue the opposite. 
Now, the, the other lesson is just as true. We should not assume that because our father may have been a pastor or something like that, that we are safe from the enticements of the world and, and the idols of the heart. We should not rest our hope on our family history any more than we should rest our despair on our family history. Instead, over and over again, we see people acting contrary to their family history. And when we look at Ruth, the character Ruth, she acts opposite to an entire nationality. And in so doing, she shows herself as a true Israelite. And that is why down the road, we'll, in chapter four, we'll see this, Boaz can marry her because Ruth is a true Israelite. This is hope for us because most of us probably are Gentiles. And as we read the Old Testament scriptures, there's primary hope that's given to the Jews, to Israelites. But subtly and significantly, God shows us that being a true Israelite is not a matter of DNA, but a matter of being born as a child of God. In the same way that Israel was God's firstborn son, we become God's firstborn sons and daughters as we identify ourselves with him. And, and this changes not only our present reality, but also our eschatology as we look to the end of all things and know that we are welcomed into God's kingdom, his forever kingdom, as a son or a daughter because of our identification with Jesus Christ, the truest Israelite of all. Okay? So, so I want to continue to work this over in our minds so that we start to identify ourselves, not in terms of flesh and blood, but in terms of children of God. That's how the New Testament authors pick up these texts and talk about them, particularly the, the author John. In the Gospel of John and in his letters, he says that we become children of God, that God's seed is in us, which, which is something of a graphic way of talking about us being reborn as the offspring of God. And Ruth shows us that this has been God's intent with humanity from the very beginning. So much so that Israel's greatest king is at least an eighth Moabite. But he's less Israelite than that. He's less than seven-eighths Israelite because he also has a great, 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 many greats, grandmother Tamar. Okay? This is the way God works. He acts in surprising ways to redeem his people on his behalf. All right. That, that's the, the entry into the action that's about to take place. Ruth is going to do everything that her mother asks her to do. So in verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. Now, more literally, that's, she did according to all that she was commanded. Now, I, I may be stretching things here a bit, but I think in a way we see Ruth acting in the steps of righteousness. No. There, there's this theme of rest that's been pervading this book of Ruth well, if we think back to Noah, Noah is this guy who's going to bring rest to the toil and labor of the people of the earth. And then God will give him some confusing and uncertain plans that will bring rest. And the text says with the same language that Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And I think very subtly, Ruth is being pictured as a righteous individual because she acts in obedience and she acts in faith to bring about rest for God's people. 
And even as she's going to find rest in the home of a husband, she's going to be, bring rest for her mother-in-law, Naomi. So I, I don't think this is a strong connection, but I think it's there. And I think it's interesting to note these kinds of connections because what we see is a non-Israelite functioning in, in the ways of the patriarchs who have gone before her. So then she goes down and in verse seven, it tells us that after Boaz ate, drank and was in good spirits or his heart was glad, uh, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley and she came secretly, uncovered his feet and lay down. So she came in and, and perhaps Boaz is laying in a tent. This is more clear in, in the Hebrew text, but a lot of these verbs are idioms for sexual intercourse. And so this, this air of sexual tension is the storyteller keeps bringing up over and over again, and it comes in again here. And so once again, we're left wondering, how is Ruth going to act on the threshing floor and how is Boaz going to respond? And beyond that, if we assume that Ruth is going to act as her Moabitess lineage would, and Boaz would be noble, if, if he considers that she's a prostitute coming into him, that ends any hope that he's going to show kindness to her family. If, if he acts nobly, and if he assumes she's a prostitute, then it's over. So this is daring any way that you look at it. it it's a compromising situation, and it in one way puts the hope of Naomi in jeopardy, but in another way, as we'll come to see, it actually secures this hope. So he's laying down. She came in secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And at midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. And he asks, who are you? You, you can imagine the surprise. Um, I, I think we would all be surprised if we were laying asleep at night, and we turned over in our sleep, and we woke up, and there was a human figure obscured by the darkness, but touching us, laying at our legs. That, that would be a scary, startling situation. And uh, particularly in a world where the natural and the supernatural are not so divided as we might think of it. And so the ancient Jewish rabbis, in commentating on this text, suggest that Boaz thought there was a, a demon laying at his feet or something like that. But they're, they're suggesting that this was a... A, a heart in your throat sort of moment for Boaz. He is scared out of his mind. And, and I, I think he was right to be scared out of his mind. So he asked her, who are you? Okay, now we need to pause here again to appreciate the literary structure of what's going on here. At, at this encounter, it's the dead of night. Um, it's, it's planned. It's a highly planned covert mission in the middle of the night and it, Ruth is taking the initiative, knowing what she's doing. And Boaz says, who are you? Well, this is parallel to their first encounter, which happened during broad daylight in front of everybody when Ruth happened upon Boaz without even knowing who he was. And his first question is, whose are you? You know, to who do you belong? Well, you have these two parallel scenes going on. And in the first scene, Boaz ended up acting on behalf of Ruth. And as we start to note the parallels, we start to hope that Boaz will do so once again. She responds, I am Ruth, your servant. Okay. Now, if she ended here, 
she would have obeyed Naomi to a T. So if you remember Naomi's instructions, it was to go in, uncover his feet or his legs, and lay down next to him, and then he will tell you what to do. Well, when he wakes up and asks who she is, not only does she say who she is, but then she goes on not to listen to what she should do, but to go on to tell him what he should do. She replied, take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Now, there are two items of significance here. The first item is that she went beyond what was required of her. What, what laying at this feet and uncovering the feet would have done would, would have effectively been asking him to marry her, presenting herself as a bride. She's perfumed, she's dressed up, she's enticing, she, she's signaled this uncovering, and it's a marriage proposal. But, but what's significant in her going beyond that to ask him to take her under his wing for you are a family redeemer is that she's now acting not just in the interest of gaining a husband, but also in the interest of providing for Naomi. If you remember, the redeemer had no obligation to marry Ruth. The only obligation this redeemer had out of the several that we considered from, from the Torah was to purchase back land that had been sold outside of the family line. So what I think Ruth is doing when she's naming him as a redeemer is reminding him that he has some level of responsibility, not to her, but to Naomi, all right? And, and this is going to come to bear later on when Boaz devises a way of convincing the, the town to let him marry Ruth. It's because he's going to redeem Naomi's property. So when Naomi sent Ruth out to meet Boaz, it was on the basis that he's a relative. Well, now Ruth is asking him to act on the basis that he's a redeemer, which is to say she wants him to act on Naomi's behalf and not on her behalf alone. Now, the other item of significance in the language here, in our text, it says, take me under your wing. This once again parallels with her first encounter with Boaz when he blessed her and said something like, may the Lord reward you under whose wing you have come for refuge. Well, now Ruth is saying to him, you prayed that God would cover me with his wings of refuge and now I'm asking you to be that wing of refuge. I'm asking you to be the divine embodiment of God's action to provide refuge for myself and for my mother-in-law. Ruth gets it. Ruth gets that God visits his people through material means, sometimes by visiting the land with a bountiful harvest like he did in the beginning of chapter two, and now at other times by visiting his divine presence and action through faithful, loyal people. And she's calling on Boaz to do this. Boaz replied, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Now, 
Boaz responds to this positively, and he's going to take on a responsibility that the law does not require him to take on. But our hopes are stamped a little bit because there's this other redeemer that has first claim to Naomi's land. And, and so we, we might not have as high hopes as we did when we first heard Boaz say that he would do whatever she asked. We only have time to comment on a few, few things here, and, and we'll pick up next week. But Boaz refers to Ruth as a woman of noble character. This language matches Ruth with Boaz's description in Ruth 2 verse 1. Both of these individuals are people of noble character. And so now we're looking on this. And despite the fact that we know the law that says a Moabite can never enter into the assembly of Israel for 10 generations, despite that fact, we're starting to think these two people belong together. These two people are of noble character who belong together. And we're going to have to start to work through how can Boaz the Israelite marry a Moabite woman within 10 generations of that command in Deuteronomy. And part of it is going to be, as I've already mentioned, that Ruth is showing herself to be a true Israelite, though not a genetic Israelite. But then second, this language of being a noble woman only appears two other times in the Old Testament. Once in Proverbs 12, 4, in a proverb that says, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. And then once again in Proverbs 31, 10, where the question is asked, who can find a wife of noble character? She is far better, far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will not lack anything good. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. So in both contexts where this noble woman is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, it's in context of marriage. And, and I think what the author is doing is trying to suggest to us that Ruth is a fitting wife for Boaz. How can a man find a, a wife of noble character? Well, by being a noble man like Boaz, and Ruth is going to be this fitting wife for him according to the wisdom of the Lord. And in fact, this is why throughout history, when people have made different arrangements of the Old Testament, they'll place the book of Ruth immediately after the book of Proverbs. So you have Proverbs 31, that's all about this man finding a noble woman. And then you have the story of Ruth illustrating the noble woman. And that noble woman in Proverbs 31 just serves as an illustration or an embodiment of lady wisdom. And lady wisdom is just a metaphor for God's wisdom in this world. And so as we string these things together, we start to see that Ruth is becoming an embodiment of God's wisdom that's going to work out the, the creative work of God. So the book of Proverbs talks about wisdom being woven into the fabric of the universe. Well, now Ruth is going to be woven into God's redemptive, redemptive plan in history. And it's going to be a good and righteous thing, despite the fact that there's a Deuteronomic law that prohibits the marriage of Israelites and Moabites. So I just want to give a word on reading Ruth as a love story. Ruth isn't a love story. Okay, it's, it's not a Hallmark movie. It's not the most beautiful love story in the Bible or something like that. What it is, is a praise of virtue and nobility. And if we learn anything about love or marriage or dating or something like that, it won't be seven steps to the perfect you and, and spouse or something like that. 
Instead, it's going to be a call to action, and that action will, to be, will be to embody virtue and character and wisdom and nobility and conduct your life in a way that furthers God's purposes in this world. And in so doing, you will likely come into contact with other individuals who are doing that same thing, whose lives are oriented in the same way, and, and perhaps you'll find someone to marry in that way. I, I think that's the closest we can get to a love story out, out of this, but I think there's wisdom in that itself. Now, if you find yourself in a marriage where you say, I am married to someone who is not the embodiment of wisdom or virtue, and my marriage stinks. I wish I weren't in this marriage. Well, there's, there's very little that you can do to transform your spouse, but there is everything you can do to act as God's agent in this world to pursue wisdom and nobility and virtue, and in so doing, display to that spouse what it looks like for someone to be tied into God's purposes in this world. And, and it, sh- it should be a reminder, as painful as this might be to hear, that your hope was never intended to be placed in your spouse. Your, your greatest hope in this world is not going to be in your spouse. And God's greatest work to bring you from emptiness to fullness in this world is not going to be marriage. So whether you're in a marriage that you hate being in, or whether you're an unmarried individual who's looking for fullness in your spouse alone, it's not going to be there. It's going to be in God's kind loving, faithful hand who will move you from empty to full as you embody his wisdom and virtue and nobility and action in this world. And I know that that is not the kind of promise and hope that makes everything better in a moment, but it gives you a course to live your life by where you will find more fullness and hope and enjoyment of God's acting in your life than you will if you only look to that spouse or the hope of a spouse and hope to find fullness and rest in that person. That's not what this text is primarily about, but it's tangentially about that as we see Ruth who gives up hope of a husband in order to give herself over to her mother-in-law. It's tangentially about that when you have this guy, Boaz, who has not gone out seeking after Ruth, but instead acts in nobility and virtue towards her whenever he has an opportunity. And so I just want to encourage you, whether you're married and you love your marriage, the way to keep loving that marriage and and keep finding enjoyment with your spouse is to act with nobility and virtue. The same is true if if you don't love your marriage or if you have no marriage. Live with your life tied into the larger work of God in the world, and he will make you full because of it, whether a husband comes or not. And and the reality is for some, like Ruth, a husband will come. For others, like Naomi, Naomi never gets another husband. She she never finds fullness in that way. And, And so however God chooses to work in your life, I'd encourage you to interpret it as later Naomi will interpret events as God's kind, loving hand, rather than earlier Naomi, who interpreted it as God's hand turning against her and his bitterness poured out on her by the Lord. So in, in the end here, we, we see Boaz taking on a responsibility that was never his to take on, to act as the answer to his own prayer for, for Ruth. And you see Naomi taking on the responsibility to act and answer as her own prayer for Ruth. 
And you see Ruth taking on the responsibility to act as a divine providing agent for Naomi by securing Boaz as a divine providing agent for her her mother-in-law. And so every character you look at it, in every way that you look at these characters, you see them embodying divine action in the world. And so this brings us to where we started. And that's my encouragement to you to see yourself as in a position to take on divine action in this world. So that when you hear the prayer request of your fellow church members, you don't say yes and amen and go home without another thought, but instead you look for strategic opportunities to be the divine hand of God in that person's life. That's your privilege. So that when you act in that way and and you touch someone else's life in that way, they can say, I have encountered the Lord here. God has visited me in this person. That's why we can say Boaz and Ruth and Naomi are all in some ways shadow incarnations of the Christ who would come because they are bringing divine action into the world. And now we stand as mere reflections of that great incarnation of Christ as we act as divine embodiment in this world. So, So I just want to encourage you, as you hear of needs in this assembly, as you make prayers yourself, don't have this idea that an angel will come down and fulfill your request or that, that another advent of Christ will happen to bring about your prayer. God works in mysterious ways and perhaps angels do act on our behalf and we don't even know it. But I think more often than not, as we read church history and as we read the Bible, when we pray a prayer, the first person who ought to act is the person who prayed the prayer or the person who heard the prayer. So we take advantage of these opportunities. And later on, Naomi will tell her daughter to just rest. So so I think we follow in that role. We take action in as much as we're able to, and then we rest. We rest because God works through human people to move his people from empty to full, purposes in the world. Let me pray that God will do that for for each of us.